Lord God, we come today as worshipers, honoring and celebrating your worth. We realize as we do so that it's really all about you and not about us. Therefore, as we pray, we surrender ourselves to your leadership in our lives. We ask that you honor our request, but be gentle with this. We're so used to being in control, but we want to surrender control and give it over to you. We want to be more dedicated to you every day. We want to go deeper into the kingdom of our Lord. And so, Father, we just ask this day that you honor our intentions and multiply our efforts as we seek to change the world by sending gifts to children who have never seen or heard of such a thing, as we spend more time and money on things of the kingdom. Help us as we pray to be more focused upon eternal matters. Surely you will help us in our times of trouble and suffering. You will help us, we know. You will answer our prayers with the right response and not necessarily what we ask for. And so we thank you and honor you in advance for that. Nevertheless, Lord, the world is a fearful and scary place at times and we bring our anxiety to you so that we can let it go. Our fears for our loved ones, our, our inevitable aging and decline and death. We give it all to you, Lord. We give our anxiety about finances and work and family and relationships, and we just give it to you, Lord, and, and really want to leave it in your hands. We pray for the church, Universal, and for Shiloh especially, that we might be the body of Christ here in our community, that our discipleship might result in leading others to serve as your disciples and then changing our world right here. We ask you these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose words we now pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. This week, we're kind of at the midpoint in this series of messages geared towards men and their families. And uh, we will change gears a little bit next week, but continue to inspire men. And uh, we're going to take one more look at Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus. And in particular, we're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 4. So we're going to read Ephesians 4. And we're going to read verses 25 to 32. So if you want to follow along, that's on page 1161 in your Bibles at the table there. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But I want to encourage you as you dial that up to read the entire book of Ephesians. It's not that long. It is very 
rich in its benefit to you. And um, it's Ephesians and Colossians is kind of one of the most vital things you can read as far as improving your walk with Christ. And take notes as you're reading through Ephesians. Write down some things. If you saw Overcomer, remember what the, the person said to, to the girl, you know, read Ephesians and take notes because it was that good and it, it made you realize who you are in Christ. And so I recommend it too. But let's look at these last few verses and then we will carry on here. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, today we're going to focus on those words, especially at the end where he's giving very specific exchanges. Horace Mann said that habit is a cable. We weave a thread of it every day, and at last we cannot break it. I saw that quote and I wondered what he meant by that, so I never like to quote someone without trying to find out a little bit about them, and it turns out Horace Mann is a, a well-known politician and teacher from the 19th century, and it just so happens that around the 19th, early part of the 19th century, a French engineer named Louis Vicat invented a technique for strengthening suspension bridges that involves taking a cable one strand at a time across the span and over the, the uh, towers until you've bound so many cables together that you've created one large, very strong cable, and it's called cable spinning. And I found this little example for you to look at up there. And uh, I thought about what M Horace Mann said, and I thought, you know, that's the way it is with our bad habits. We don't start out saying, you know, I think I'll develop a bad habit and really make it stick. You know, I mean, nobody starts out that way. We do certain things, make certain choices, and we do it unconsciously many times and then they just start serving us in some twisted way that we don't even realize that you know, there might be a better way. Uh, for example, I've noticed that most bad habits are either attempts at self-medication of pain, you know, like you have some sort of uh, uh, emotional stress or something that you experience and you find that this bad habit seems to help you at least take your mind off of it. Instead of really going to the root cause of your problem, you find a way to 
sort of numb the pain. And that's what a lot of bad habits are. And then other bad habits we pick up because of the people we associate with. We, we and sort of graft ourselves into a certain circle of people and we find ourselves perpetuating bad habits that they indulge in and so forth. And that's kind of how those things go. And Paul speaks very clearly to this in what we just read. And so I imagine when Horace Mann was watching what, have been, what would have been a new technology in his day, he was probably fascinated by how much it's like the way our bad habits form, one strand at a time. You know, we never really start with one big bad habit. We start with a lot of little things and we build them one strand at a time until they become exactly what you want the cable on the bridge to be, which is something so big and strong that it can't break. But that's what happens with our habits. We find that we cannot break them. I talked to a gentleman from our church recently who said that he had been asked if he ever tried to quit smoking. And he said, sure, about 40 times a day. And the reality was is that the better question would have been, have you ever tried cutting back on your smoking? How many packs a day do you smoke? Oh, about four, okay. Could you cut back to three? See how that goes. See if you could just reduce the number. And so instead of trying to take on one big problem, you take it one strand at a time. And the truth is, is if we were talking about the bridge and we imagined that we had a bridge with a corrupt cable, that had some sort of corrosion or something and it needed to be replaced. We could not take the whole cable down without collapsing the bridge. So that's not a very practical way to approach your habits or repairing a bridge. You have to deconstruct it the same way it was constructed, one strand at a time. And so you would take away one corrupt cable and then you would replace it with one healthy cable. And you would just keep doing that until at the end of the project, it had been completely renewed, but physically and visibly, it didn't seem all that different. But the corrupt had been removed carefully and replaced with something. And that's where I wanna go next, because if you really read carefully and heard what Paul was saying, he offered exchanges. He said, exchange this for that. How many dieters have seen that option presented to them as a means of getting a handle on your weight control, your diet and exercise and your eating and everything, right? You, you find that if you want to cut back on the kinds of foods that make you fat and unhealthy, you have to do it one meal at a time. And usually it's about the choices you make. Now, I've tried to lose some weight over the last year or so. And one of the things I've learned is, is that I have to stop right before I'm ready to start munching and think about what I want and then look around to see if there isn't something better. And so I make a decision. In my mind's eye, I'm picturing, Laura always makes sure we have lots of fresh fruit and vegetables that are right out in the open where you can't miss them. And so when I'm heading for one of my favorite junky things that's not gonna help me lose any weight or keep myself healthy and strong, I stop and I look at those fresh vegetables and fruits and things and you know, I go, vegetables, but it's a better choice. So I go for it. And 
This is called exchanges. I mean, uh, I think Weight Watchers does that, right? Don't they do an exchange? So the whole idea of an exchange is that you trade this for that. You say, not this, but that. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has said in this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so when he says, let the thief stop stealing and start doing good work with his hands. When he says, exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. When he says, exchange the, uh, the whole habit of using your mouth to, to, to say stupid things and hurtful and harmful things, exchange it for something good. And so this whole thing is a series of exchanges, and I want to unpack that with you right now. I like the word exchange because it's sort of, uh, if you take the word exchange and you break it down and reverse it, change X. <laughs> you know, so we're going to change X. We're going to pick on one thing, one habit, and we're going to change it one thing at a time. And that's what Paul wants you to do, and that's what I want you to do. This has worked for me. And I think it's really important because we are witnesses. We bear witness, men, to the world around us. No more important group than right there in our house. We bear witness to the children and to our wife, to the people that we work with. They look at us, and if we say we're Christians, then we ought probably to present ourselves in a way that glorifies Christ and doesn't take away from our witness. It isn't what gets you into heaven, but it is a way to help others get to heaven. And that should be our goal because men, one of the things that God has wired us for, and I'm sorry for speaking in very general terms about men and women, but I'm convinced as, as God planned it, men and women were supposed to be different. And so generally men are certain ways and generally women are certain ways. And men, we're just kind of, you know, we're providers and protectors. It's just kind of what we do. And one of the best and important things we can do is to save those who need saving, to help those who need helping. To run toward the risk is a very natural thing for a man to do. And we are, we are urged by scripture to lead by serving. And so we serve when we sacrifice some of the habits that we've developed for something that's more constructive than destructive. Now, when we think about our whole world this way, we can reflect on what Paul's driving at here. He's opened the letter to the church in Ephesus by spending three chapters explaining how it is that God's grace saves us and why it's so important to embrace that salvation. So the first thing that has to happen before any chains are gonna get broken, before any bad habits are gonna get changed, is you've gotta accept Christ as your savior. The first thing you have to do is admit that you got a problem. You have to admit that you need salvation, that you need a savior. And once you've recognized that before God, your sins are all apparent, and before God, your lack of respect for God and honor for God is not something you can hide. And therefore, the first thing you have to do is apologize to God and say, 
I don't want this to be the case anymore. Please take away my sin. And through Jesus, God covers your sin and God sees it no more. And this means that you are now in the household of God and the gift he gives you is new life, a new interior structure, a new set of software. He rewrites you from the inside out. This is when you now have the power with the help of the Holy Spirit to overcome the bad habits and the things that keep you from really honoring God with your life. And that's what Paul wanted you to understand as he wrote in the first three chapters. And now he gets to the nuts and bolts. Now he talks about how you have to completely change your worldview. You no longer interpret the world the way the people around you do. You interpret the world as a biblical Christian, as somebody who's interpreting things through your relationship with God that is informed through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And this is how you interpret the world. I, I told this story at the first service, and I think it bears repeating. I was talking with someone from a former church about six or eight weeks ago, and immediately the person picked up where they'd left off the last time I talked to them years earlier, because this person's really, really, really devoted to her political party. And that's what she likes to talk about. And she said to me, you know, you and I just, we're not the same politically, are we? And I finally, I finally just said something I wanted to say the whole time I was serving in that church, is you don't understand. I don't, care. I mean, I just don't care. It isn't whether or not I have a different political perspective than this person. What I'm really saying is, is I don't care. You assume that because you're passionate about it and you care so much about it that I do too, but I don't. It just doesn't matter to me. It's irrelevant to me. And the reason I share that story with you is to say that this is one of the times when I realize how much my relationship with Christ has changed me because I just don't look at a lot of things the way I ever did before that I don't have the same worldview. So when I see politics and all of that, you know, dominating people's lives, and when I see them, uh, uh, you know, like, you know, every time I go to a nursing home, this is, this is a bit dangerous step aside here, but every time I go to a nursing home, I walk down the halls and it's like, in one room, CNN is playing constantly. And I go past another one, and Fox News is playing constantly. And then when I do the church service, the first thing they want to do is, well, we got to pray about this. And of course, you know what they want to pray about, right? And the, the people I love to worship with at the nursing homes are the ones when I go by their office, there's, or their office, I mean, their, their room, I, I go by and, and they've got like a 50-year-old Western playing, you know, they've got a rerun of Bonanza or something. It's like, okay, this is a person who knows how to die. I literally remember a guy, I'm really got to get back on track here. I, I remember a guy that was so upset all the time because he was always watching CNN. And I remember saying to him, you know, have you ever thought about watching Turner Classics? I love Turner Classics. I watch old movies all the time. And he said, no, I never did. I went to visit him about a month later. He said, I took your advice. And he turned on his TV and Singing in the Rain was on, you know. 
He said, I started watching these old movies and I'm much happier now than I used to be. So you gotta change your worldview. I've really off, gone off there. The point that I really want you to, to uh, gather from that is though the power of exchanging things, the power of trading something that's negative in your life for something positive in your life. And if you have absorbed this culture that comes from your Bible and your church and the information and the knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives you, it naturally results in exchanges that are God-honoring, which is the whole point. Now, here's what Paul says, and I'm going to get very specific here so that we can get, get to the point and, and uh, change our lives a little bit, men. Paul says about speaking truth in love, what we really expounded upon a couple of weeks back, so I'm not going to go into that now, but what he wants you to do is he wants you to stop lying to yourself and lying to other people and exchange it for truth in love. Truth in love builds up. The other thing tears down. So when you speak truth in love, it always has to be with the goal of building up. You have to speak truth in love to yourself. You gotta look in the mirror and be kind to yourself. You have to be willing to say, you know, Pastor Dan's right, this is a destructive bad habit. And you're worth more than you give yourself credit for, so change it. Pick something different. See, you speak truth in love in order to uplift and to build. And that means some truths are harder to hear than others, but they're always with the same intention, which is love. Same thing with the anger. God is angry at times about unrighteousness and in particular oppression. God hates oppression. And you'll see that there's a theme woven through this whole passage that we just read that is tied together by each of its elements because God hates oppression. Oppression is one of the most vicious presentations of pride that there is. Pride is what sin is really all about and pride is what causes us to think more of ourselves than of our creator. That was what got Satan in trouble, right? But pride that leads to oppression, it means that you not only think more of yourself than of your creator, but you think more of yourself than others. And so you oppress the people that you think are inferior to you. And this is like one of the worst expressions of sin. And this is why God hates it so much. God gives us permission to be angry about that. But then Paul reminds us to turn that anger into substantive activity. Because the next thing he says is, is if you steal, stop stealing. Work hard with your hands. Do something worthwhile so that you can give to those in need. Exchange stealing to, for, to, for giving. Exchange stealing for giving. Let's talk about stealing for a minute because maybe there's nobody here that's particularly guilty of grand theft or something. But all, all of us are guilty of stealing. We just don't know it. Um, if you ever goof off at work, and you're not as productive on the job as you should be. That's stealing. That's taking pay and not giving back the work that you exchange. You know, people pay you. I, I always like the way that the one guy puts this. A, a paycheck is a certificate of appreciation of a job well done. Do you feel at times, and this is mostly about men, but it goes to all of us, 
Do you ever feel at times that you've accepted a certificate of appreciation for a job well done and you knew in your heart it wasn't a job well done? That's stealing. If you set priorities that put God second to other things in your life, that's stealing from God. That's stealing God's glory. That's, you know, so, so don't think for a minute that stealing doesn't apply to us all because it does. And there's a hundred other examples, but those are just a couple of, of basic ones to help you see where this goes. So when he says exchange stealing for hard work so that you can give to those in need. John Wesley was famous for that. He had, I, I'm listening to his journals right now in an audiobook form, and, and that man put more money, he made more money than he could have ever used, but he never had a thing. He died with like two shillings in his pocket, and it was because he took every penny he made and turned it back into advancing the gospel in England. And that was, his, that was his way of living. Now, most of us aren't as dedicated as that, but, but how many times are we stealing from God because we're taking money and giving it to frivolous things when it could serve the poor? Now, let's just talk about the poor for a second because this is really important. You know, when we talk about poverty in the kingdom of God, we have to think about not people you know, that we naturally assume about poverty in this country, we're talking about people who have no power over their own lives, people who are powerless, people who are easily oppressed, people who have little to say about their circumstances. These are the people that God wants us to help. These are the people God wants us to deliver. We call them widows and orphans in the Bible because in that culture at that time, that was a pretty accurate way to describe people who had little power over their lives. But we are meant to take care of people on the fringe who can't help themselves. Some people are temporarily powerless like victims of a hurricane and sometimes people are in a cycle of poverty and powerlessness and we have to come alongside them. That's what we're supposed to do with our hard work that produces good. Paul asks us to exchange unwholesome talk for a better way of speaking. I want to talk about that for a minute, and I want to divide it into two parts. First, we're just going to talk about words. Most of you are familiar with certain popular four-letter words. I'm familiar with them. When I worked in the trucking industry back in the 80s, I became very familiar with them. And I learned a certain vocabulary that took me years to unlearn because it's a very bad habit and it's easy to get caught up in it. And it's very hard to break the habit. There's something that I learned recently and I'd like to share this with you. And this begins with a quote where I learned it, which the quote says, civilization is nurtured by maintaining a distinction between public and private things. That distinction helps sustain human dignity. Do you know the meanings of most of the four-letter words that are the most common? You probably do. If you know the words, you know what they speak of. Do you know that they speak of things that farm animals do out in the field for everybody to see, but people generally do in private? 
So when our language is devolved into the frequent use of these words, we're basically taking what separates us from the animals and giving it away. We're talking like the animals are walking. And what, are we, what does that make us? It certainly doesn't make us humans made in the image of God, does it? And if you really think about it, foul language has a way of changing all of your language. I've noticed, because I've been around it, I've been exposed to it a lot in the past, and I can tell you that when you hear people speak frequently with those kinds of words, they don't really say very intelligent or well-articulated things in general either. In other words, they've not only lost their ability to communicate without the use of foul language, but they've lost their ability to communicate with any sophistication at all. What I did to combat the problem of swearing in my own vocabulary was to develop my vocabulary and to find new and more creative ways to express myself. And that's why I've become the word nerd that I joke about all the time, because I've decided to grow my vocabulary in order to find ways to communicate more effectively. And what I've done in the long run is I've become a better communicator all around. And it's because I've chosen to leave behind simple, dirty words and replace them with more sophisticated way of communicating. Not because I think I'm better than anybody else, but I'm better than that. And my God deserves to hear me speaking with a wide range of ability and vocabulary so that I can reach people where they are with good news instead of confining myself to a limited vocabulary that includes the liberal use of cruddy words. You see the difference? Men, we've all been around that. And when people curse and use those kinds of words around me, sometimes they'll go, oh, pastor, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't talk that way around you. And I always think, you know, I'm not unfamiliar with these words, and it doesn't hurt me when I hear them. But it does make me think, you could do better than that. You could find a better way to express yourself, and it would give glory to God. So let's talk about it on the next tier. And, and I know I'm running over today. I'm sorry. But this is really important. There is also just the general misuse of our mouths that we all are guilty of. I am mystified and sometimes a little judgmental, I admit it, when I find that some of the people I know in church who talk a good game about being Christian and about their Bible and stuff like that, and then I see their Facebook posts and it's hatred towards a particular political figure or hatred towards certain people you disagree with about this and that. And I find that there's an, there's an inconsistency there. If you really are embracing a new life in Christ and you really are subjecting yourself to the kingdom authority of Christ, then you got to let go of a lot of that stuff. And one of the things that has to go is malicious, destructive talk. It's amazing to me, in the 25 years I've done ministry, I've noticed this is worse in some places than others, but it's amazing to me how a prayer chain can turn into a gossip chain. 
It's amazing to me some of the destructive, hurtful conversations I hear inside the church walls. The mean-spirited criticisms and the overly uh, exaggerated assumptions about other people's intentions and so forth. This leads me right into the thing he says about forgiveness and grace. He says that you should forgive as you have been forgiven. And you know what? You're stealing from God when you take over the judgment of other people's worth by holding unforgiveness against others. You're stealing from God because God is the judge and he won't let you have that. But when you try to take that away and you try to say that you know better about a person's worth and that's why they're not worthy of forgiveness, you're taking God's job. Do you see that? When we forgive, we heal ourselves and we begin to change our nature. I found just as recently as 10 years ago, the ability to forgive a couple of people in ways that I didn't think I was capable of because the hurts were so deep and from such a long distance. But I found the way to forgive that worked for me and I felt that I had completely released it and it really is gone now. I really have no ill will towards the people that I had been unforgiving toward. And the funny thing is, is it healed me. And it even changed the way I talked to them and about them. So this whole malice in our voices that Paul is speaking to is directly tied to forgiveness. When you begin to embrace grace as a lifestyle, you find yourself completely transformed over time so that you're not you, you just you forgive easily you don't even think about stuff like you used to anymore this is the transformation Paul is explaining so unwholesome speech unhealthy speech judgmentalism criticism unforgiveness these are all things we need to find exchanges for and until we're willing to make the exchange a reality in our lives, we'll always default back to the guttural, cruddy language and the simple-minded, mean-spirited, unchristian behavior that we see all around us in the world. We are separated from the world now. We've been born again into a kingdom where there is no physicality to it, but our king is the one to whom we owe all our loyalty. And the king is reigning right now. And the question is, is how many of us here is he reigning over? Because it'll be demonstrated in the way you live your life, the way you speak, the way you respond to hurt, the grace you show to others. That's what Paul wants you to understand. Oh, I got to share this one because it was good and I didn't share it at the first service. Nelson Mandela said this, this very famous quote, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and then hoping it'll kill your enemy. Right? Men, here's what I want you to focus on once again. You can't go it alone. This is not going to work if you go it alone. 
I have had so many people, especially men, tell me over the years, I don't need to go to church. They're all a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of women, and I don't want to go there. I can be close to God out in the woods or out on my fishing boat. You know what? So can I. But that ain't church. Not with a capital C. It won't change anything about you. In fact, if you spend all your time out there saying, I'm closer to God out here than I am around all those church hypocrites, well, you know, you're, really, you're basically saying, I ain't going to change. That's what you're saying. Here's what I know about church. It's a family where you are safe. I told Pam, I would tell this to the girls that were singing for the first time today, you know, thank you for having the courage to do something that was scary for you. And the most complimentary thing that those people have said to you, all of you, is I'm safe here. I can stretch my limits here. I can put myself out there in front of you because you're my family of faith. I'm safe with you. Isn't that how you should feel about each other here? So when we speak truth and love to each other, that means this is the place where you practice getting better at living the life of a follower of Christ. And you can't practice when you're by yourself. You got to be around others. So men, we have got to get it together here. We've got to get it together. In fact, I forgot the video again. We're going to show it during the offering. Okay. All right. Perfect. And this video shows you how quickly and easily women form themselves into groups and have awesome classes and gatherings. Well, men, we're not as good at that as they are, but that's because they're women and we're men. But we ought to get together more and we ought to urge each other on more. Don't you agree? And we're not going to do that unless we do it on purpose. And so that's the other challenge today. Let me know. I'll be glad to facilitate. For now, I'd just like to offer a quick prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts and change our natures. Thank you for making people patient and persevering in the seeking of your truth. Even if it costs them a few extra minutes. Now. Honor the sacrifice by glorifying yourself, we pray. Amen.